0: Okay, good morning
1: everyone. Seeing so we've achieved a mere miracle the full panel precisely on time, and 9am, I think we made the most of that and kick off. Uh, good morning, welcome to this uh, Institute for Government event. Uh, nothing better than talking about the Constitution at nine a.m. on a Tuesday morning. I think you are all fine and I can see that you all agree. My name is Hannah White, and I'm director of the Institute. And we're here this morning, as I hope you all know, uh, to talk about whether a Labor government can deliver constitutional reform. If that's not what you're here for, now's the time to leave. <laughs> um, if you Uh, If Labour wins the next election, uh, then it seems that big constitutional change could be on the horizon. The party has supported plans to replace the House of Lords with an Assembly of the Nations and Regions, to embark on radical revolution in England and set up a new Integrity and Ethics Commission. So, what do new Labour government need to do to make these plans a reality? We at the IFG, working with the Bennett Institute at the University of Cambridge, have recently uh, completed a review of the UK Constitution, and one of the things we looked at is how to go about doing constitutional change well. Um, and I'm very glad to say my colleague, Jess Sergent, who's the uh, main author of that report, is here to talk about that today. I'm also joined, as you can see, by a stellar panel uh, to discuss these issues. Uh, so working from right to left, uh, with Dave Penman, who's General Secretary of the FDA, and I'm delighted that we're working with the FDA on this event today. Thanks very much for uh, helping us put it on, Dave. Um, Then we have Anna Serra, of course, Leader of the Scottish Labour Party, Jess Sargent, as I said, from the IFG, Uh, Stephen Bush, who's Associate Editor at the Financial Times, and now with Angela Smith, who is a Labour leader in the House of Lords. So a fantastic panel, I'm sure you would agree none better than to help us explore this question. And I'll put a few questions to the panel, and then I'll make sure there's plenty of time for questions from the audience. So do be thinking those up. So Stephen, I'm afraid I'm going to pick on you to start with. Um, can you, as I've said, we've seen these proposals for constitutional reform, uh, many of them included, of course, in the Brown Commission report. What do you think will actually make it into the manifesto? Um,
0: so, spoiler alert: in terms of this afternoon's speech, I think a lot more in terms of devolution within England will make it into the manifesto than in terms of the House of Lords. But the important thing to remember is that I think it's—you know—it's correct to be cynical about Labour and Lords reform, but. It's important to draw the right conclusions from that cynicism, which is that there is a reason why almost every uh, Labour government has done something to change how the House of Lords uh, operates, which is that every Labour government has come in and had to fix its own parliamentary problem in the House of Lords, which um, I'm aware that I'm within hitting distance of. Uh, <laughs> um, but, yeah, while, of course, there are very many distinguished people in the Labour group, they are significantly older than uh some of them <laughs> uh,
1: significant,
0: <laughs> uh, sorry significantly more distinguished <laughs> than, um, than uh, some of I mean, yeah, there are now conservative, several conservative peers who are younger than I am, which, okay, I'm forced to accept is not as shocking as it once was. <laughs> uh, but... but um, but that is a real problem for for the Labour Party. At the moment, the uh, imbalance between when you look here, yeah, if you look at the two numbers on the common on the Parliament Parliament's website, you go these parties are about equivalent strength. But actually the number of um, working peers uh is asymmetrically tilted towards the uh towards the Conservative Party because they've appointed a lot of 30 and 40 year olds in the yeah I mean partly because if you've had so many prime ministers right that's an awful lot of uh, resignation honors to to pad your your lord's majority with uh I think so although I think there'll probably only be some kind of line yeah you know, giving them space to do something on the hereditaries I think actually even the people at the top of the Labour Party on the common side I think probably will end up having to go further on that and they think and of course on devolution within England uh, it's a huge part of Labour's answer on growth is that if you devolve more within England uh that means that you don't have to have difficult conversations about tax and spend whether or not that's right economically uh it will be in the manifesto in a big way
1: thanks Stephen and I promise we are going to get on to how some of um but Alice to turn to you as we said, the about House of reform, devolution within England, but relatively light in the Grand Commission on points about devolution in Scotland, what's the Labour Party offer going to be uh, to people in Scotland in relation to the Constitution? Well, I, I would always only
2: say nice things about Angela, but uh, so I'm, I'm so glad I'm sitting at the opposite end of the, <laughs> the, the, the table just in case uh, Stephen's going to get it once this event's over. Um, I, look, I, I think the first thing to say is, I think if you look at the Brown Commission report, what it focused a lot on around the relationship between Scotland and the UK was actually about the relationship and how you do cooperation rather than conflict. Because I think the big challenge we've got in Scotland is over the last 13 years, whilst we've had a Tory government at Westminster and an SNP government at Hollywood, it's felt like devolution is about two governments fighting with each other. And actually, playing up on those fights and therefore failing Scotland rather than what devolution was meant to be about, which was two governments cooperating with each other to deliver for Scotland and to find Scottish solutions to Scottish problems. And I think the most fundamental thing that you'll see change is that reset of relationship. So you have a UK government that respects the Scottish Government, that works in partnership with the Scottish Government when it's in. Scotland's interest and the UK's interest rather than trying to pick those deliberate fights. And it's so interesting to hear the conversation around devolving power to the regions of England because one of the big challenges I think we face in Scotland is rightly we have a debate around how we strengthen our Scottish Parliament, but we never really talk about how we stop a centralisation in the Scottish Parliament and actually push power out of the Scottish Parliament to the cities and regions of Scotland. Because, I mean, I think about Glasgow, my home city, I've got much, much more in common with a Liverpool or a Manchester than I do with, for example, the Highlands and Islands eh, in Scotland. And therefore, how we strengthen, I look at Manchester, I look at Liverpool, that representation around economic drive, around transport infrastructure, economic development, eh, planning infrastructure. So that similar model, I think, has to be adopted in Greater Glasgow and Greater Edinburgh and Greater Aberdeen and Dundee eh, and in other parts of the country. So, that debate for me has to be fundamentally changing the relationship, redefining what devolution is and then pushing power out of the Scottish Parliament as well to the the regions of of Scotland.
1: That's very interesting. Dave, some people have suggested that if uh, Labour were to win the next election, they would, like the Blair government, need to move pretty quickly to deliver constitutional change, if that's uh, what they want to do. What do you think shadow ministers will need to do to prepare to enable civil service to deliver their ideas? And what will the civil service need to do?
3: Yeah, I mean I think one of the, the difficulties of um I mean not just the last thirteen years but I think since um uh, since devolution has been the kind of disconnect between Westminster and the devolved administrations that Paul Aniston made about the difficulties around how governments have competed with each other, rather than what is writ large in the civil service. So I remember Elizabeth Evans, the Permanent Secretary of the Scottish Government, in a speech at Institute for Government, talking about how she would have conversations with uh, Westminster-based civil servants who did not understand devolution, thought they had responsibilities for powers that actually were devolved Uh, to Scotland. So I think one of the big challenges for ministers and for the civil servants is going to be how do you actually uh, work with a government that wants to work with the devolved administrations. I take that point that is making about a willingness to engage rather than compete, but actually it shouldn't just be about the kind of niceties and approach of individual ministers. It needs to be institutionalised. What's actually been quite interesting over uh, the last uh, 12-18 months has been the work that Michael Gove was doing. Um, when naturally this government talked about trying to strengthen the union, and for the first time had a minister who was genuinely trying to engage uh, with government, uh, working with one degree, Gray, um, who was making a permanent secretary tasked uh, with that responsibility, and genuinely trying to get cooperation. So I think the challenge for the civil service and the challenge for that government is going to be how do you build institutions that work and can survive the competing political interests that will uh, uh, will inevitably be there um, when you have governments of different colors or indeed potentially even government's in the same colour. If you think about what happened when you had a Labour administration in Scotland and a Labour administration in Westminster, there was an element of which it felt it was the kind of second cousin that actually it was able to um, speak for Scotland in a way because it was always going to be a Labour government in Westminster that took control. So I think that's the challenge for a new government and for a new civil service. How do you build institutions that can actually make things happen in the way that Labour says it wants to happen and, and take getting decisions closer to the people.
1: It's interesting that point you make about Sue Gray, because obviously she didn't only work in Deluxe, she also spent some time working in Northern Ireland. Yeah. So I'm sure that would be <clears throat> in her mind. Um, Jess, as I said at the start, all, all of you talked a lot about how to do constitutional change. So taking this read that at different times, governments do want to do that. What are our main sort of highlights about how governments can do it well?
4: Yeah, thank you. Um, Yes, as you said, a big theme of our review of the UK Constitution was about processes of constitutional change. And I think um, when thinking about how to deliver long-lasting and sustainable constitutional change, it's really important to think about the process as well as the sort of uh, end game, essentially. I think there is a temptation often for political parties to think, how can we deliver this as quick as possible in the first term, um, potentially in the first session of parliament? But... You know, if you don't do the the groundwork, if you don't build the political and public support for a constitutional change, if you don't think through all the consequences, then I think what we've seen over the last sort of seven years or or even longer is that either that change is very vulnerable to reversal, and we've seen that with a lot of the Uh, policies that were introduced during the the coalition years that didn't have kind of broad-based political support or you're just storing up some problems for later down the line so one of the challenges for example I think we've seen in devolution is that perhaps not enough thought was given to how Westminster and Whitehall needed to adjust to that so some of the recommendations we make are about ensuring that there's a really robust process for constitutional change we make some recommendations around the parliamentary process to ensure that there's adequate time for commentarians to really think about um, the the change that they're being asked to look at, uh, to ensure that the knock-on implications for other parts of the constitution are considered. And we also talk a lot about the role of the public in constitutional change, because I think that's really essential for legitimacy, essentially. I think the constitution is one of those uh, policy areas where actually there's a question about whether it should be politicians that are the sole decision makers on it, because ultimately, as they have political party interests in a lot of the structures of government. They might have an interest in terms of executive power All these sorts of questions. So I think there also does need to be an element of public involvement. And, you know, it's easy to kind of see these as, you know, virtue isn't good in itself. You know, this is how they should do it. Uh, But also I think there is an incentive for parties to do it this way as well, because in some areas, I think building all that consensus, both political and public, can help overcome some of the, the barriers to constitutional change. So when we're thinking about things like, like Lord's reform, if there is legitimacy and consent for the process and support around that, then I think there's going to be more respect for the outcome of that process. Um, and also giving it a level of, entrenchment, I suppose, as well. And, um, you know, ensuring that the next government doesn't just come along and completely reverse it. Um, so I think there's kind of merits in terms of a constitutional outlook uh, for ensuring a really robust process, but also some pragmatic uh, lessons that I think that Labour could learn here as well.
1: Thanks very much, Jess. And I should say that Angela was uh, very kindly a member of our uh, sort of uh, advisory group on the review. Um, so Angela, you might want to speak about the view, but more generally, as Labour leader in the House of Lords, how do you think the party ought to be approaching uh, the idea of constitutional reform?
4: One um, of the reasons <coughs> I got involved and um, when you asked me, Hannah, in the committee in the first place, advisory committee, was I think, it, I start the position we have to have some respect for the constitution. And if you look what's happened over the last few years, the Conservatives have taken completely the opposite approach. Um, It's been a, if you look at some of the things, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the unlawful prorogation of Parliament. No, trying to stop Parliament debating Brexit by proroguing Parliament so it can't sit. It's extraordinary. If that happened in any other country, we would be condemning it outright. And yet we had the Prime Minister telling the Queen she should prorogue Parliament to stop debate. Um, if you look at the legislation like Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, um, if you look at the English Votes for English Laws, they just weren't done in any of the principles that Jess has described. The English Votes for English Laws, which only English MPs could vote on legislation in England, out of a majority, was put through not by any legislation, but by 20 or so pages of standing orders to the House of Commons. Now that is an extraordinary way to run a country. And so unless we have a process in place we have these constitutional changes that are taking place all the time we now have photo id for elections there was no evidence base whatsoever that there was on dollar scale that demanded photo id and yet the government rushed it through um, legislation we've seen the um overseas voters being able to vote they've been overseas for 15 years or more my belief is not about giving them the vote, it's about allowing permitted donations from people who are overseas. So the whole thing about process of constitutional changes, we've, I think, I feel we're sliding into a place where changes are being made really under the radar and no one's noticing happening. And when we talk about big issues like Lords reform, everyone will understand that and engage in that, but no one really understands what's happening on so many of these other areas have a fundamental impact on how we operate as a democracy so i think maybe the process of how we go about engaging in constitutional change we're not really clear any point and i think the brown report makes this as well what constitutional law is um so when decisions are taken in parliament is that a constitutional if we'd said well actually if you're extending the franchise or reducing the franchise um, that is a major constitutional issue with implications, and yet we just treat it like any other piece of legislation. it takes all. One vote, that would be enough. So I just think we need to rethink some of this. And I thought the point you made, Jess, about having the time to look at this kind of legislation properly, um, I went back um, before we did our seminars, the report on the English votes for English laws. And basically, it was a couple of hours debate in the House of Commons um, spread over... Um, I think a couple of days, and then voting on 22 pages of standing order changes. Um, and we said, well, how does this affect legislation in the House of Lords? Oh, well, we're not sure yet. Um, so, uh, for me, we ought to have some respect for the Constitution. It's not just in this country. You know how Donald Trump behaves. It's very similar as well. Um, but we have to have a process that says, what is constitutional law? Does there have to be a higher bar to make significant changes? I think always, um, the bottom line for me, the point about public engagement is interesting because the most sustainable constitutional change often comes from bottom-up, where there's a public demand for something. So if you think about women getting the vote, the extension of the franchise, there was a public demand for something, rather than politicians saying, we think this should change. So um, what I, the big change I would like to see is something around greater respect for constitutional law, more thought put in proper debate and of effect and consequences um, if you look at fixed term Parliaments act and English votes for English laws they were both gone within a few years observed um, more in the breach than rivals there and the purpose of them wasn't for lasting constitutional change it was often short-term political gain so fixed term Parliaments act was really there to protect the um, yeah, is there to protect the coalition government. That's not a good reason for constitutional change. So I think we have to get back, before we look at the detail of what we do, get back to the principles of why we do something, how we do something, have a proper process in place.
1: Thanks very so much, Angela. Alice, do you think that the developed nations need better representation at Westminster? What's your um, view of this Golden idea of the assembly of nations and regions? I mean,
2: I I support him on the record as uh, supporting. I think it is a a good idea to have a representative that that looks at proper representation of the nations and regions. And actually, again, going back to regions within Scotland, not just thinking about Scotland as one uh, homogenous unit. Just a a couple of points that um, that Jess made. I understand the broad argument. I'm not saying I, I disagree with that. Of course, you've got to do constitutional reform properly. You can't rush it and do it in a haphazard way. I think we should give ourselves more credit though. I don't think Labour would do it in a Conservative Party way. I think we do it in a very different way than that. And I think the challenge we're going to have is, I actually think there is a public demand to change the way we do our democracy. I don't think the public think about constitutional reform the way politicians do, the way think tanks do, or the way we have those conversations with the journalists. They think about what does it mean for me? What does it mean for my family? What are the tangible benefits of it? They don't really care which politician has which power. What they care about is how politicians use that power and how that impacts on their lives. And I think if you think back to the 1997 government, they didn't wait to do big reform around our constitution. It happened really early. We had a Scottish parliament in 1999 having won an election in 1997. That was a huge constitutional reform that happened really, really quickly because when governments come in and they come in on a change election and they come in with a hope then I think you have a political capital in those early days to do big, bold, radical change that you don't get to do in the second term of a government or in the, or the latter days of a government. So I get the balance that you have to get right, but I think there's certain things that we will have to do very, very quickly and early on. Resetting the relationship has to happen immediately. Looking at how we empower the nations and regions in terms of that devolution model has to happen really, really quickly. And early on, people need to see a tangible benefit to that. Around wider reforms, of course, there has to be a process put in place. But I think you have to do it whilst you have the political capital, because that's when you'll have public opinion on your side and you'll be able to drive things through rather than waiting to when you have, as governments inevitably do have, more challenges. And the final point I make is, let's be really honest, when we come into government, we're not going to have a huge amount of money to spend to do lots of big, bold public service reform early on, although that is something we will want to do once we get the economy growing again we still have to demonstrate a change and i think some of the changes we can do around our constitution around that relationship is that low-hanging fruit of fundamental change that doesn't really come with that large a, a cost
1: thanks Alice. dave uh, um has talked about resetting the relationship the devolution relationship um we at the institute think a lot about uh the civil service and the relationship between ministers and civil servants what do you think about the need to reset that relationship there um well, I mean, it's no secret that uh,
3: there have been challenges for the civil service and their relationship um, with ministers, um, uh, kind of of late. Um, I mean, obviously, Labour are talking about an integrity um, uh, kind of commission looking at putting the kind of regulation of ministers and their uh, conduct on that kind of statutory footing. We fully support that. Um, we've actually seen some developments in Scottish government um, around that, where there's a kind of independent process for for dealing with it. But fundamentally, that's about um, having a system in place that that can um, uh, deal with um, misconduct. What's critical, I think, is about how a new government and the ministers work with the civil service. Civil servants. Um, come into public service, just like politicians do, to change the world. Um, uh, They are bright-eyed and bushy tailed and uh, know they're not going to get paid very well and want to do good work. They're desperate to improve uh, the lives of citizens Um, and so I think Labour will Um, if they win the next election, inherent a civil service that is desperate for stability, desperate for clear political direction, and also desperate to effect change. There'll be a lot of goodwill there um, to work with. Um, and one of the things I always say about when things go wrong with civil servants is you really have to work hard to piss them off because they're just desperate actually <laughs> yeah. to, serve that to serve ministers. I mean, they, they just... And regardless of political colour as well, you know? I mean, I've, I've talked to civil servants who have talked about... Ministers who do not necessarily have the best reputation publicly, but they'll say they're really good ministers, you know, because they give clear direction. You may disagree with what they're suggesting, but actually they're very clear about uh, about what they're doing. And I think that's going to be the challenge for Labour. It's not that the institutions, in terms of the civil service, will be resistant to change, or there won't be an ability to affect change. It will be because a new Labour government have the clarity of its policies and what it wants to achieve? Does it understand, we were talking earlier on about all the commitments of the first 100 days that that everyone's wondering about talking about, do they really understand what that means to deliver any kind of um, uh, 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 policy change and and do that effectively and quickly? And I think that will be the challenge for Labour about their um, understanding and experience of making government work. Um, rather than any issue about uh, an enthusiasm or, or the skill set or the, the ability within civil service.
1: Thanks, Dave. So I think we managed to uh, identify tension on the panel excitingly at this time in the morning between whether a uh, constitutional change should happen quickly or slowly. Um, Stephen, I'll put one last question to you before I come to questions from the audience. What are your observations based on, particularly in relation to the Lords reform, uh, what are the lessons you think Labour should learn if that is something it wants to pursue uh, quickly or slowly? Um, well, I think the big lesson is to
0: have a clear idea what it is that they want out of it. But one of the reasons why the why Lords Reform kind of stalled uh, after the early nineties was that Tony Blair had a very clear idea and he wanted to get rid of the her- of the hereditaries, um, and was able to get rid of most of them. And then it kind of became this, you know, do we want this to represent the regions? Do we want this to be a Trojan horse for changing the electoral system? Do we, you know, do yeah. And, you know, do, do we, you know, let's have a nice debate about whether or not we like, STV or to Um And, and yeah, and, and obviously you get kind of caught in the, the weeds of, of that. Um, so the clear, yeah. Now, I, I as, I'm, as I've said already, I'm quite cynical about why it is is Labour will want to move quickly on that one. But um yeah, although I think lots of people have got quite used to Labour and the Dempsey's Peers being in the same division in the lobby a lot of the time, other than when the Dempsey's Peers think it's in their strategic interest to go the Labour Party is awful and hasn't voted against this uh, amendment that well, we would
4: we... the Tories.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, but this is the thing is once and, and and Ditto there are lots of yeah the conserv I don't know if you've noticed, but the Conservative Party is quite divided at the moment. Um but once uh mm Uh, because I'm not in the Labour Party, I am allowed to say once, unlike everyone else. (laughs) I think KISS Starmer actually appears behind Labour front benches, if they say once or or when, and then just um, drags them out back. But um, once uh, Labour is in office again, uh, all of those various groups who have perhaps become accustomed to voting with the Labour Party in the House of Lords will be voting against them. And all of the stuff you want to do that is difficult and technical and uh, requires a lot of falling legislation is going to get quite hard quite quickly so that is another reason to try and do um whatever it is you want to do particularly on lord's reform early and seeing as so much of what you want to do about devolution is about getting gross back that is another reason to want to do it early i suppose i'd also slightly disagree than that so i really actually disagree with both yes and Matt that and then look
1: um, the, the
0: reason what, the came yeah. in our politics yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, there, I'd say, is obviously quite a big difference between the types of devolution Labour is talking about now and the uh, public demand for uh, devolved institutions in Scotland and Wales, and the fact that London, the other bit of constitutional uh, change that New Labour did and everyone forgets, London was the only uh, city of its type without a local government, right? So that there that obviously, that obviously was quite a big unmet demand there. Uh, that's not the case for this type of reform, but let's face it, the reason why recent constitutional changes uh, haven't commanded enduring support is the Conservatives have stopped winning elections. Like, if a couple of Police and Crime Commission elections had gone the other way, we'd still have, have the supplementary vote for the mayoral election. So some of this is just as simple as partisan advantage, and that I don't think is ever going to be um, consulted away, as it were.
1: Great, okay. I think Jess wants some rational reply before we come to the audience. <laughs>
4: Great, thank you. Um, Yeah, I I completely kind of take uh, all the points on the panel. I think one of the things I'd highlight about the particular devolution example is I think part of the reason why uh, the Labour government was able to move so quickly on that was because of the groundwork that was laid by the Scottish Constitutional Mm -hmm. Convention in sort of building political support, uh, bringing in uh, kind of campaign groups and civil society groups to kind of figure out the details of what they wanted a Scottish Parliament to look like. And that was really essential to kind of be able Able to start at a point where there was sort of agreement and consensus and an idea of, of how that could be made a, a reality. Um, so I think thinking about. That is good practice I think there is a question of, of what can be done in the context of, of future reforms especially big ones like House of Lords reform where I don't think we're at the point where we have any kind of you know public or political consensus about what that should look like are there things that could be done for example like kind of citizens assemblies or constitutional conventions like we've seen in the Republic of Ireland on kind of key quite difficult issues to try and find a way through that and ultimately ask the people what what kind of second chamber that, that they want Um, because ultimately if you're able to get some sort of public mandate and public buy-in for a particular form of of the House of Lords then I think that will make it easier to overcome some of the political resistance that you might face and that has uh, stymied lots of attempts of Lords reform in the past so I think there are kind of other tools that could be used other ways to make progress uh, without necessarily kind of jumping straight into legislation before you have some kind of consensus around what what a reform
2: I just think it's important to separate the Lords reform around the centre of the nations and regions from a resetting of the relationship empowering our cities and regions and not seeing it all as being one big piece of work that all has to be done yeah, at the exact same, yeah, same yeah. time I think it's really, really important to stress that point because we do have to show immediate, fast change if we are going to take communities with us and to, to be blunt, you're not going to build a Scottish Convention-style approach to say, how do we get much more regional power in Scotland? That, that, that approach is not going to work. So, so, I t- so I would just separate the two. The other point I would make is, I think what's got, what what we're going to do differently is, we have got to road test in opposition. If we are going to move fast when we get into government, and this is, goes beyond constitutional policy, it goes for every single policy we have in every single portfolio, we have to road test it to death in opposition so we're ready to implement it when we get into government, rather than having the big idea in opposition but then you're not in a position
1: to implement it when you get to government. That's a very good point. OK, we're going to go to questions from the floor. My colleague has a mic. So you can down here. Alex, and we'll start at the front. Start with George,
5: and then. Okay. Uh, uh, George Peretz, uh, Society of uh, Labor Lawyers. Isn't the issue with um, the House of Lords, it seems to me, you have to divide it into a short-term problem <coughs> and a long-term problem. There's a short-term problem, which is that the House of Lords doing its current job has all sorts of problems with it. Um, The problem Stephen was talking about, the problems of uh, appointments by the current government. There is a C word, but I'll use cronyism, other C words are appropriate, describing some of the people who have been appointed. What you can do immediately on the House of Lords is keep its its current functions. The revising chamber doesn't challenge the House of Commons um and you can reform the appointment system you would have fixed-term appointments you can have a much better you take the power of patronage away from the prime minister you have a, a more potential way of appointments there's other things you can do and you can reduce the size of it by finding a way of to clear out the hereditaries once they're gone they're never going to come back ditto the bishops um, and reduce the size that's a set of short-term things you do which don't involve any change in the house of Lords' current constitutional role and is therefore fairly straightforward to, then there's a longer term problem, is do you want a second chamber that does something different? And that's a much more complicated exercise, it ties into devolution and other issues, and that requires a much longer process of thought. But if you think of this as a short term problem and a long term problem, the answer then is to do something quick about the short term problem, and then take rather longer to deal with the long term problem.
1: And well, then let's take the question is, does the panel agree? Yes. Uh, oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
6: Aaron Jones, former First Minister of Wales, and a member of the Bone Commission. Uh, first of all, I just want to agree with what Anna said about the need to, to ensure this is not one big package. It, it's too much to do all at once, uh, but there needs to be a plan as to what is implemented and when. Uh, I spent 18 years in government, 10 dealing with the Labour government and 8 dealing with the Tory government. And the major difference is, there are disagreements, even when you have the same party in power, both ends of the M4s, we would say, but those disagreements are resolved whereas now they're just magnified. And part of the problem is we don't have a functioning intergovernmental machinery process anymore. The JMC doesn't work. It's basically a low-level shouting match. And the dispute resolution process has gone to the point now where it worked when Gordon Brown was prime minister, I saw it working, to the position where just nothing is ever taken there because the UK government has decided that it, it will decide whether there's a dispute or not. So it doesn't even start. And of course, if you get into a position where you're in dispute with the Whitehall Department, that dispute is settled by the Treasury. So it, it, the whole system is rigged. So we need to deal with that. Secondly, and I will be brief, there needs to be a way of ensuring there's greater buy-in for constitutional legislation. The, the, the JMC could have been a great place for governments to agree. For example, the way the UK internal market uh, should function in the future. Instead, it through the Subsidy Control Act and the Internal Market Act, which will basically mean that there'll be a reserved seat in the Supreme Court for all governments over the next uh, few years. Uh, so one, one of the issues for me is going to be really important is to reset how intergovernmental relations work, how that machinery works to make sure that faith is restored in the system. Thanks, and
1: there's a gentleman on in the end here, Alex. Thank you, um, I'm Ben Still. I'm Chief
5: tech of West Yorkshire Combined Authority. Um, I saw this a little bit when the Brown report came out um, in that constitutional reform of the House of Lords and central government takes up all the oxygen. There's a desperate need for a shifting of the parent-child relationship between central government and local government. How does the panel suggest that we don't let central con- constitutional reform take all the oxygen? How do we get the actual the changes needed between that relationship between central and local? Thank you.
1: Great, I've okay, got an excellent set of questions to start with. Uh, uh, Angela, do you want to give off? I do I suggest that uh, still, if you they have, have to answer all the questions so we can get through as many as possible, just pick the ones that you think are most relevant to you.
4: Yeah, thanks, George. Clearly, um, House of Lords reform is the first... Well, I have to say to you, I don't spend my days thinking about House of Lords reform. The work we did in the House of Lords, we're more focused on what we can do to deliver the programme of a Labour government to change people's lives, and that's going to be the focus of everything we do um, if we are able to be the um, next government. I think you're right on short and long-term issues but it has to be said i think this is the first of the history where the house of lords itself has voted for reform it's the government that's blocked it we would have had if it'd been left to the house of lords a smaller house of lords you know changing the appointment system we'd have had a two out and one in um when we left government after 13 years there were 24 more labor mps than conserv peers than conservatives when the conservatives no, at 13-year point, they have 100 more than us. As a maiden, we never win any votes. We do it by persuasion and working and making the arguments. And I think the Conservatives have lost the ability to make the case for their arguments. And basically, let's put some more in and we can just bludgeon our legislation through. And that doesn't sustain. It doesn't last. And that's why um, the point you made, Stephen, about um, getting the support of the smaller parties is actually we sit and make a case for what we want to do and the government doesn't try to do it. So, but I think there are things that um, immediately come to light, like the appointments process. Um, But there is, I suppose, a need, things can't carry on as they are. I think we need to look at change that is sustainable change. Um, I sometimes get concerned that the big focus becomes on who rather than what we do. And I think you have to focus. What do you want a second chamber to do? Do you want to be a revising chamber? Um, do we want it to be a chamber that can challenge the government, have equal, and have equal powers to the House of Commons, or a secondary chamber? Those issues to bottom out. But for me, the big issue will be that nothing. Um, that happens in that first time of a Labour government should stop us getting our legislation through and the House of Lords should never think it can block a government's legislation just because they've got bigger numbers. But yeah, there are I think, a number of things we could do very quickly. It's the point Anna's made. You can't just sit back and do nothing. You have to move forward um, with the kind of programme that's going to change people's lives. Um, and households can't be a block. And there are short-term things that can be done. Um, just, just on the devolution stuff, I think one of the mistakes we could say we've made um, in government is that because we wanted to have a a reasonable, good working relationship with devolved institutions, you think that sustains. Now, I'm not somebody who looks for structural answers to political problems, but that has not been the conservative way. It's been new. Even ministers say to me, they haven't got the power in the chamber to say, I'll look at that again, because number 10 won't let them. Everything is directed from the top. Because we had a good working relationship and we saw that as part of the process, you can't assume another government would do that. So there are things I think we have to embed in legislation to ensure that there are proper processes in place that whoever is in government, if one day in the future we should ever have another Tory government like this, God help us, um, we should never let them get away with the changes the way they've behaved in the, the devolved institutions at all. Thanks, Angela. Stephen, do you want to take either IGR or
1: uh, shifting the relationship between central and local government?
0: Yeah, so I, I, think I don't really accept the premise of the question on the... Well, yeah, then, actually I mean if anything there is a stronger and more developed consensus in theory about what um, Westminster would like to do about ending the parent-child relationship and the reason why it, if that doesn't happen um, uh, in the next parliament that will be for one of two reasons, the Labour Party will have unexpectedly lost the next election um, or um, central government will decide and it likes having control but it's, that's not yeah, in some ways like the, the last thing I think that the um devolution in England agenda needs is more oxygen on it in terms of debate and discussion in Westminster. Like, broadly speaking, we know that is wildly eccentric, that local government has very little rev- revenue raising powers, that um yeah, you know, none of the, yeah, you know, then essentially unless the less, mayor start doing things like tourism taxes or congestion charges, which seems obviously the hope with congestion charges isn't congestion reduces not and it's just a money maker for the local authority um, we, we know about all those problems and they 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 persist because the Treasury likes control yeah I mean the the central problem with devolution as envisaged in the 90s is that it only really works is only ever really worked when everyone involved has been of the same political party I'm not Obviously, the history of the Labour Party doesn't necessarily indicate and that means everyone gets on and likes each other. But, um, um, but yeah, the, the, the big challenge is is to have something which is more enduring and works when not everyone has the same coloured tie. Um, but, again, some of this is just about power. There is a reason why the Treasury likes to, whoever is in power, likes to be able to control local government. And there is a reason why governments tend to sulk when they don't win uh, elections to devolved or metro mayor elections.
4: Thanks you, Just- Thanks. Um, yeah, just to respond to a few points, um, I agree with what Anna said earlier about sort of uh, not seeing this as a whole package. And I think, you know, just by what I was saying about processing those big bang reforms, I do think there are uh, some things that can be done uh, more immediately, including, uh, as, as George mentioned, some uh, kind of shorter term reforms to the House of Lords to kind of improve its legitimacy. Um, I also think a reset in terms of the relationship with the developed nations um, and also with Parliament as well, um, I think is, is really important executive parliament relationship there's reversing some of these trends around inc- increased use of secondary legislation not making announcements to the house those are things that the Labour government could do quite easily to signal sort of respect for the constitution um, and a kind of different approach uh, to, to the previous government. Um, in terms of sort of IGR more broadly we have had um, a new iteration of, of the intergovernmental re- machinery and, um, after the review of intergovernmental relations. Um, I think that is that is positive what we're seeing is more working at portfolio level we've got this new sort of to which is gonna in, in theory help kind of resolve some disputes um, and also some changes to the dispute resolution process but i think what's really essential is that when we know if intergovernmental relationships are working well it will be when a uk minister is thinking about implementing a policy that will have implications for the devolved administrations, either because it touches upon devolved areas or it might create divergence, and they might actually stop doing what they were originally planning on doing because they will think about the devolved aspects of it. So they will let devolution act on the constraint and what they want to do. And I think as well as, you know, intergovernmental machinery, I think that's that's something that needs to run through the whole of the civil service, um, ensuring that there's good understanding of devolution, particularly now we have a slightly more complex post-Brexit regulatory arrangements where there's a possibility for divergence on things like um, agricultural standards or environments or those sorts of things. Um, I think that also needs to happen in Parliament. Parliament needs to think about the devolved implications of the legislation and, as you mentioned, also where um, the Sewell Convention applies um, and parliament needs to kind of respect uh, the the messages that are coming out of the devolved legislatures in terms of legislative consent and those sorts of things so yeah I think IGR is one element of that but I think there are lots of other things that could also be done to improve the working of of devolution and relationships between the devolved governments.
2: I think Angela's kind of covered the the George's question about the Lords. I think think the, the broad challenge for us is going to be that we can't get into a situation where the Lords becomes a handbrake on a Labour government that has a mandate to deliver its manifesto after the election. And so I'm, I'm sure Angela and the team are already, already thinking about what those uh, short-term solutions will be to try and address some of those uh, some of those issues. I mean, that 100-plus majority for the Conservatives in, in the House of Lords is an obvious uh, problem that will need to be addressed uh, early on in the Parliament. Uh, on, on Carbon's point, I mean, he's, he's absolutely right around that. Uh, joint ministerial council not really not really working in in its current form uh, not really having that respect agenda our challenge is going to be is we can design the best structures in the world if you have bad faith actors on either side or as we have right now on both sides it's still not going to work and i don't mean that on a civil service level dave can uh, correct me if i'm wrong i imagine civil servants probably at the moment subtly go around their ministers to try and get as many things as much things done as possible and then only go to ministerial level when they absolutely have to. But if you've got people that are bad faith actors, you can design the best model in the world. Humans will still find a way of disrupting it. So so we just gotta be alive to that um, that that point. On Ben's uh, question around central, local, again, I think separate the the reforms in terms of what happens at the centre, reforms that we require in local government. Fundamentally, there has to be respect uh, of different layers of government. Um, I think there's been lots of occasions where both the UK government and the Scottish government have got that fundamentally wrong in terms of whether it's respecting each other in appropriate circumstances or respecting regional representation, for example, our mayors, or in the case in in Scotland, respecting local government. And and one of the big debates I think we'll have in Scotland as we head towards the election in 2026 for the Scottish Parliament election will be how do you reform funding for local government and how do you strengthen local government in Scotland? Because at the moment it's absolutely decimated. And final point around funding for local government is one of the things i think we have a opportunity in. Stephen's mentioned already for example tourism taxes congestion charges the challenge you're going to have is if people if people think the actions you're taking around climate change are less to do with climate change and more about raising money for your local authority because your budget's been slashed you're not going to take the public with you and one of the things i would be really keen for us to look at for example through our gb energy project is how do you get local authorities to take stakes in developments in their local areas that generates an income for them to then spend on local services and i point towards a couple of projects i went to see in the western isles where they have set up community wind farms that raise money that they're using the profits of that money to actually fund social care packages in the western isles if it can work in that small example why not look to replicate that across the country
3: very interesting uh, uh, i mean i'll just say briefly i thought one of the the interesting points that Carolyn was making was that um which kind of sums up the problem here is that you know when there was a dispute um who played the trump card And that was the treasury and that i think is just the reality of when it comes to when we talk about devolving government and devolving power a lot of that is about the money and i think the appetite if labor have it Um, and the test of it will be whether it's to local authorities and reforming how um, uh, the funding of local authorities takes place and actually giving more of that uh, decision making, not just revenue raising power, to local communities, whether that is through the kind of regional uh, um, uh, networks or direct local authorities, and also to the devolved administrations. Because if ultimately Westminster holds the purse strings, that's always going to be the point in time where they can can play that trump card. The one thing I would say I take the point that main Harris about when you've got bad actors, it doesn't matter what the institutions are, but We know in terms of devolved administrations, there is always going to be that potential conflict with different colours of governments. And so whilst you cannot guarantee to solve it, I think you can create institutions that are designed to deal with that tension in a way that makes it really difficult for bad actors whose political interests might be actually not to agree to kind of try and force agreement and not become a blockage around it. So I think looking at that, about how that works, and trying to build institutions that can survive um, uh, the, the kind of worst case scenario is something that, they, that you can do a lot more work on. Thanks, Kate. Okay, let's take
1: another round of questions. Alex is a lady in the front row here.
4: Thanks very much, Mandy Shelton, from, um, a councillor from Manchester. Um, that is exactly the point I would like to bring up. It what we've seen over the last umpteen years is, is purely as a result of bad faith acting um, across a whole range of, um, of, of, of every, well across the piece really so I wanted to know what we thought we could possibly do because that <coughs> is what underpins the whole terrible last decade that we've lived through Thanks
1: Thank you, and then there is a, there was a lady there in an orange, I don't know if you changed your mind you're not putting your hand up now <laughs>
4: <laughs> um, yeah. Hi, I'm Holly Jones. I'm a postgrad at um, uh, UCL's Institute <coughs> of Innovation and Public Purpose. Um, I was kind of asked a similar question um, in terms of you know we talked about a lot of reliance on on, uh, on good faith engagement and the kind of sensible um, uh, you know the, the expected incentives that that people act on. Um, you know uh, codification and statutory footing is all well and good, especially between civil services and, and ministers what kind of statutory consequences would have to be in place that would, would constrain a government when there's like an active and disincentive for them to do so um, you know if we're talking ultimately if there was a um, you know could people go to prison for
1: example in a, in a really extreme example rather than just getting a procedural procedure and slap on the wrist thanks. thanks and do you want to give the mic just to the gentleman next to you for convenience <laughs> uh, just to save time
6: um i'm, I'm a pollster at opinion um and so i want to ask about the public consent question so we had obviously um as you mentioned in the 90s there was strong public demand for devolution in scotland and wales and in london and then in 2012 we had i think 11 local referendums on metro mayors and i think nine of them turned out no and yet metro mayors are the most successful um, constitutional change of the last sort of 12 13 years so to what extent is the lesson here um if you build they will come
1: Thank you. Seeing the first two questions were similar, we'll just take one from Tom here.
0: Which is probably slightly similar as well, but it's directed at, at Angela. And it is um, we aren't going to let the Lords block Labour's legislative programme code for appointing lots of new Labour peers? And if it's not, what sort of process do you see working to actually get the support of crossbenchers and other parties, and indeed some Conservatives in the House of Lords, to get your legislation
5: through?
1: Thanks very much, Tom. So we've got bad actors twice, um, public consent, and uh, what does this mean for Labour membership of the House of Lords? I'm going to go the other way down the panel this time. Dave, do you want to kick off? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think in
3: terms of bad actors, um, I think when it comes to individual, if we're talking, about uh, are going prison, uh, we're talking about the kind of individual conduct um, of ministers. I think one of the problems is that you have to take Um, some of the kind of decision-making around that away from politicians. And so generally dealing with um, what the the Integrity and Ethics Commission are talking about, about a kind of independent process for dealing with um, uh, ministerial misconduct, um, whether that's about personal behaviours or more serious misconduct, uh, I I think is really critical and important because uh, we always come across, we've seen that both in terms of issues in the House of Commons and when it comes to ministers themselves, politics always um, plays too significant a role in the choices that are made if it's left to a Prime Minister to make those decisions. So I think there is an opportunity for, for, for Labour, if it comes in with its commission, to genuinely take the responsibility for dealing with uh, those issues away from the politicians uh, of the day. What the consequences are kind of between governments or between governments and local authorities, I think is more complex. It comes back to that point if the incentive as monetary um, if that's actually the kind of point, and that's where power lies, then that's probably where the kind of punishment lies for not for not doing it. So there's a kind of default around where money flows and how decisions are taken that force people to make make decisions. But it's a much more complex answer, I think, around what does that kind of institution look like that forces people with politically opposed interests to actually to to work together. Um, uh, I think that point about um, if you build it, they will come. I think's a, an interesting one. Um, I think that sense of saying, do you wait, how long does it take, or do you go on with stuff, is going to be one of the big challenges that that Labour um, has. And, And when it comes to constitutional issues, that is also... Uh, at large because it is the sort of thing where you want to build consensus, it is quite complex, it is quite difficult and um, it's the sort of area where there isn't, it's not a kind of settled necessarily left and right answer. So I think, um, as Alice was talking about earlier on, about actually um, thinking about some of this as low-hanging fruit is quite an interesting way around, saying actually he'd just go on and do some of this stuff. Um, um, because there's a political will to do it, rather than constantly um, uh, talking to everybody about it I think is an interesting way of, of looking at it um, and when there is a lack of money and a lack of ability to do other things, actually making some of these changes might be quite an interesting way of labour demonstrating that they're getting on and
2: doing stuff and, I, I want to repeat what um, Dave said I agree a with this answer and also the answer you gave, gave before about how to change some of that relationship um, I think the interesting thing I think we do get a change of government next year. I think the really interesting thing will be to see how the devolved administrations react to a UK Labour government that's coming in with an agenda to cooperate rather well than to, conf- to do conflict. And I actually think there's a real opportunity of that <clears throat> and a real test point, I think, actually, for if I think about the, the Scottish government, a real test point because I, I honestly think going into the election in 2026, it will be about conflict versus cooperation. And I think they will probably have to look like they're trying their best to cooperate rather than what they currently have is to look like they have to conflict because they're up against a Tory government and a Tory government that actually wants conflict because they don't actually believe fundamentally in devolution anyway. So I think some of that, that power dynamic and relationship dynamic could fundamentally change after the election in, in, in 2024. And I think that would be really, really interesting to see. The argument, of course, that, that we would want to make is what well, more you can achieve if you have two governments cooperating with each other, disagreeing when it's right to disagree, but cooperating with each other to maximise the benefit for people uh, in Scotland and right across the country. Yep. The, I won't get into consequences. I'm not. I'm not for putting. <laughs> I'm not for Dave in jail. Uh, I'll, I'll just. I'll just answer it as that. Um, in terms of public consent, I think the thing about referendums, and we've seen this. In in a big constitutional referendum in Scotland, the referendum around Brexit, and then indeed the individual referendums around mayors, often referendums become about other issues than the actual thing you're voting on. And and I think that's part of the reason why you you saw the results you did around uh, regional uh, government and around mayors. And secondly, if you ask the public to vote for whether you want more politicians or not, I don't think on balance they're going to say they're going to vote for more politicians. But if you actually show the public what regional mayors can achieve and deliver, for example, what you've seen in London, what you've seen in uh, Manchester, what you're seeing in in Liverpool, what you're seeing in mayoralities across uh, England, actually there's, there's now starting to be a creeping demand for some kind of mayor's model in Scotland as well, where people are saying, and I go back to the pandemic, Um, I think about that really powerful moment when Andy Burnham, with all the local authority leaders across Greater Manchester, stood on the uh, front of the uh, public hall demanding a, a better deal from UK government around some of the restrictions around COVID. A very similar situation happened, for example, in Glasgow, where Glasgow had a more restrictive COVID policy than other parts of Scotland. But there was no one standing outside the public hall, the city chambers, demanding and speaking for Glasgow. And I I often think about if we had that regional mayor model, whether that dynamic would have been fundamentally different in Scotland um, as well. So so I, I think people have shown that mayors work. The regional development works, economic development. It can leverage and support. It can leverage in investment. It can make things happen. And I think the more people can see the positives of it, the more likely we are to see support for the rise.
4: Great, thanks. Um, Yeah, just to touch on the question around sort of bad faith acting, obviously one of the options would be to create sort of punitive uh, sanctions in this area, but I think we also need to think about the kind of political policing of the constitution, which is primarily kind of how our constitution works, that actors don't do things because there will be political consequences or because they don't see them as things that they should do. And a lot of the recommendations in in our reporting, our final report of the review of the UK constitution are aimed at sort of ensuring that the constitutional propriety of activities is considered at every stage in the process. It's considered in government, it's considered in cabinet, it's considered in parliament, um, to ensure that um, actors are constrained by the politics of the situation, as well as just the kind of potential law. And I think if we can kind of increase That uh, kind of barrier and those protections, then we can stop things happening in the first place rather than necessarily trying to uh, create consequences for them after the fact. And I think that's one of the things that has really broken down in the past seven years or so with things like the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, uh, which you know countenance breaking international law, something that you know five, ten years ago was probably seen as kind of something that you just obviously didn't do. Uh, So I think that's something that needs to be reset. And just quickly on the question of. Public consent. I think referendums are a particularly binary way of trying to kind of engage the public, and quite even if you know they would like to see more devolution, uh, uh, they might not like it in that particular form. So, I think that's a case for also involving people in the options. Um, and I think if you if you do that, then actually you can help build um, consensus for an idea and, and the delivery of it as well. Thanks. I'm conscious that due to my bad sharing,
1: we're possibly going to run over, so I'm going to politely ask final to be as brief as they can <clears throat> um, right so on bad actors
0: and indeed on Bill it and they will come look um essentially there is no system that you can build that it, that prevents someone being um destructive if they either if they clear whether it's under our system 35 percent of the vote or if you have a Um, more representative electoral system 51 percent but of course if what you care about is good governance and scrutiny of the executive that is the killer argument for changing the electoral system uh if you care about um the government of the day being able to get all of its agenda through that is the killer argument against changing the electoral system but that is the effective avenue to deal with bad actors multi like there is a reason why more ministers resigned under in the coalition than since right it's because you had two parties indeed yeah if you have like the blair brown level of, of psychodrama then you can recreate some of those dynamics for yourself internally but broadly speaking like right, that's the choice you make when you have uh, between pr and first past the post right on on metro i mean i think absolutely it shows that we have this weird problem in the uk that we're both over centralized and Westminster does too much, but we're under centralized. And it is, yeah, you know, the amount of time I spend Googling does insert devolved here have power over X? Yeah. Um, which is just not a re- that that's not something which civics, anyone in civic society should have to do, right? You should have a reasonable expectation of okay, I understand what the what the mayor of Manchester or the mayor of the Westmids, either to kind of have the most powers, do. Therefore, I know without having to check that that is also the power of london there and that is also the and one of the reasons why it was right as well as fact referendums can become these sort of multiple things is, you know, i know those people in this room probably want to forget but about a decade ago people in this conference would say things like well what does it matter to wigan if, if manchester gets more power and this was considered like a smart or intelligent contribution um and yeah it, it took having that metro mayor and having you know very strong council leadership to create a sense of, actually, it is in people's interest to have that collective together. And every metro mayor, the thing they will talk to you about as long as they have this, they have a continual about having to hold their outlying areas together. Well, look, if you ask people in like outer London, if they wanted to be run by the London, London mayor, they would say no. Like if, you ask people in, if you ask people in any city periphery in the world, that's what they'll say. So some of the time you have got to accept that you've got to have a bit of centralization in your devolution.
4: Thanks,
1: Stephen. Angela, final word to you.
4: Yeah. Um, if I have time, I'll mention my friend. But first, we'll talk about Tom's question. I'm really, absolutely clear on this. It was not code. Keir is absolutely not minded to put dozens and dozens and dozens of new peers into the House of Lords. And I'm clear on that for two reasons. One, we all think it's too big or radically smaller. But secondly, by the time I get to the end of conference, I'll have 30 or 40 applications in my bag to join us. <laughs> 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 so I'm really clear on that one. That's not yes. where we are. But secondly, the House of Lords does not have the power to block a government's legislation. There is sometimes a fundamental misunderstanding about what we do. Under the Salisbury-Addison Convention, goes back to 1945 where there wasn't that many Labour peers anyway uh, at that time, um, and we're still way behind the Tories. Um, it was agreed you do not block legislation um, and second readings go through with no opposition, um, no voting opposition. Now The Liberal Democrats don't abide by that because they say we weren't part of Salisbury-Addison because so Addison was the, my, one of my predecessors, the Labour leader and Lord Salisbury was a Conservative leader. But it is a fundamental principle, isn't it? That an unelected house does not stop a a government that is elected not fulfilling its manifesto obligations. That is a fundamental principle. You make amendments and whatever. So um, that's where we are on that one. And also the Commons always has a final say on amendments. The House of Lords makes, because our suggestions are so good on amendments, most of them are accepted by the government. Okay, they keep quiet about those ones, they just tell you the ones they don't like. Um, so, um, so there's no code there, it's just we will not allow it to happen. Um, I think if the House of Lords was to behave unconstitutionally, then we're into a different ball game. But I, I genuinely don't believe that we can't get our legislation through. And you would imagine there's those conversations go on at the moment to ensure we do. It's also the Tories have had more votes against them because so it's been bloody awful legislation. Some of the things they've put forward, you know, some of their own people say to me, I can't possibly vote for this, I'm going home tonight. And one of the reasons the Tories have lost so many votes in the House of Lords isn't just because you've got a really well-organised Labour opposition. It's also because their own people go home because they don't like the legislation that's going through as well. Can I have a really brief re- word on this? It's just... One of the things I find difficult about referendum, you have a really complex issue that politicians can't decide on. And we say, oh, we'll have a referendum. And you don't do anything else other than say there's a vote on a certain day. I'm not an enormous fan of the civic forum type, you know, civic discussions. But I do think the way the Irish dealt with the issue of abortion is a brilliant model where a hugely controversial issue they took the time, they engaged, and they reached a broad consensus that people could accept. So I think if we're looking at referendums, um, and I'm not a great fan of those either, but I think we can do it better rather than just say, on this day, you get to vote on an issue that we can't decide on.
1: Thanks, Angela. I shouldn't do this because it's not the IFG, but there's a really good report from the UCL Constitution Unit on how to do referendums. well. Um, I don't know how
4: to read.
1: Oh, yes, yeah, Justin's already read it, so that's yeah. fine. <laughs> <laughs>
4: um...
1: Thank you so much to the panel. I think that's been a really great discussion. Thank you very much to the FDA for sponsoring this event. Uh, if anyone would like to read our review report, there are some of these around and we can use the uh, QR code to um, uh, get a copy of the report or download it from our website. Um, if you'd like to join the AFG for further uh, uh, excellent events such as this one, uh, there's one starting in less than half an hour on um, obesity policy. Then later this afternoon on how a Labour government can use strong local institutions to reduce regional inequalities, which I feel that people in here may also have an interest in. And one that I'm sharing later this afternoon on how the central government could be organised under a new Labour government. So lots still to look forward to and will you just join me in thanking the panel today.